The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. All right, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Good. Hey, this is a great group. Good looking group too, man. Especially good looking today. Good, you looking good, my man. I just figured you'd like to know that today. I was talking to your wife. Uh, I'm kidding. It's so good to see everybody here. Happy Labor Day. Hope you got great Labor Day plans. Um, we're studying the book of Genesis. We're in chapter 1, and we are moving very slow, verse by verse, but soon we'll get to the large narratives, and it'll go a lot faster. We won't spend 12 years in Genesis. I think John Piper spent 12 years in Romans. There were kids that grew up in his church that only heard the book of Romans their entire life. And I was like, that's not a bad thing, but that's a little strange, I'm just saying. So, so we're going to teach a little more than Genesis the rest of their lives, but uh, today I want to just ask you to do me a favor. Give me a few minutes of your attention to make some pastoral points. And that is just not typically what I do. Typically, I'm pretty quick jumping in, working verse by verse. But I want to make a pastoral point today. And that point has to do with what do you do when someone challenges your beliefs? What do you do when someone challenges your commonly held, firmly held belief? Be it your pastor who teaches a little different understanding of Genesis 1 and two, or your science professors at school, or teachers at school, or friends, or co-workers, or we have a large medical community in this church, maybe it's your fellow uh, medical professionals, or maybe it's your professor at med school, what do you do when they challenge you with something that you did not agree with, or you did not believe, and they have an alternative opinion? Well, I want to just spend a few moments to to address that because one thing we're passionate about is we don't want our students going off to college and for the first time hearing something different than what they were told by mom and dad and then abandoning the faith because they've never really thought about it. And also for adults, we want you to to know how to respond when you're confronted with uh, someone else who believes something different. And I want to give you a principle to live by. As you are confronted with what you believe, the principle to live by is the text is king. The biblical text, I mean. The text is king. Okay, that means that logic and reason alone is not king. Uh, Tradition alone in and of itself is not king. Science is not king. The text is is king. And now to, to, to work that out a little bit, that means that when someone challenges you, what do you do? If the text is king, if that's the principle to live by as you are challenged, then what should you do? Should you bury your head in the sand and say, I don't know, this isn't what my parents taught me, I don't want to think about it. Or should you say, wait, what? That's, that's what science says? Oh, well, then that must be right. No, the text is king. Should you dig in because what your mom and dad or your your pastor said was was the text? Dig in because that's what you were told and label them a liberal, label them a heretic and get upset and and just close your ears and, and just blow them off and call them a name and put them in a camp. No, we don't do any of that. If the text is king, what should you do? This is your time to respond. If the text is king, what should you do when your your belief is challenged? Go to the text. 
right. Now, go to the text means you're going to have to turn your brain on and you're going to have to test what science says or what your parents said or what your pastor said like the good Bereans did in the Bible. The Bereans looked at the Bible and measured everything their pastor said against the word. That means you're going to have to turn your brain on on more difficult areas because if there's a lot of debate about it, the odds are that text is a challenging text. And then there's there's usually some vagueness or some interpretation that needs, which means that you may actually have to read some scholars. You may have to read a Hebrew scholar to help you understand what the Hebrew words could mean. For example, the Hebrew word could mean earth. The Hebrew word could mean land. Same Hebrew word. And so, but you can do this. Some people are like, I don't understand any of it, so how do I know anything? How do I? You can do it if you'll engage with it and you'll engage your brain and you'll start reading and you start reading the text. Most importantly, you can trust your English translations. They're very, very trustworthy, good. There'll be footnotes like the comment I made about earth and land. It says this could be earth, this could be land. You've got phenomenally good translations to go by. You can trust your Bible. Read them, read them, read them. Read other sources that help you understand them. And then think about what the person's saying. And you measure what they're saying against what you see in the Scriptures. And if it's crystal clear in the Scriptures, like how is a person saved, Jesus Christ is clear. If they debate that with you, you stand firm on that hill, you die on that hill, but you do it with grace. And you say, there's no negotiation here, because the Bible makes this clear. But you do it in a way that allows you to then try to see if they would like to believe in Jesus, instead of saying, I hate your guts because of the way you talk to me. We do it in love and with grace. And so, if something's not so clear in the text then we hold that position a little less dogmatic. We say, you know, the text seems to say this. This is what it says. What it means is a little more difficult. And so it might mean this. It might mean that. What was your theory? Okay, well, let me measure that against what I see in the Scripture. And the more that different theories line up with the Scripture, the stronger the theory is. And so the, the clearer the text is, the stronger your conviction is, but all of it's done with grace. So, two issues that are hot-button issues in our culture are raised in the text of Genesis, or the issues are often discussed when we look at Genesis, the age of the earth and evolution. So let's apply that principle to those two issues, the age of the earth first. In Genesis 1 or 2, what does it say the age of the earth is? With crystal clarity. How old is it? Thank you, Jerry. Jerry has spoken. It's settled. <laughs> it doesn't say with crystal clarity. Now, some people say, well, if you go to the genealogies, and if you go to this, then the genealogies dictate this, and so then if this was created the same time man was created, then it's probably about 6,000 or 10,000 years old. And at that time, I would say, that's a valid interpretation. That has a lot of strong arguments from the text. But it's not crystal clear. It's not the only possible answer. And so, how old is the earth? When someone asked me, how old is the earth? When was the earth created, Tracy? I say, in verse 1. And they say, well, when was that? I say, I have no idea. But I know it was in verse 1. 
And so I'm a little less dogmatic about the age of the earth because the Bible is not as clear to me on that topic. Now, why do people get passionate about that? Why does that scare some people? It's because oftentimes people who believe in naturalistic evolution also believe in old earth because that then says, oh, well, the earth is old enough for life to have evolved. And so if I allow that possibility, some people get afraid that I'm going to believe in evolution. And so you're a heretic. Now, that hasn't happened in this church. Don't worry. Hadn't been a bad week. But I want to help you address these things in the community, in your workplace. So don't jump to conclusions just because we are, have integrity with the way we handle the text. And I think with integrity, we have to say, there's some room for discussion about the age of the earth. What about evolution? I think the Bible is absolutely crystal clear about evolution. Before I explain, let me define the term. Please listen carefully to what I'm about to say. The evolution I am talking about is the formal theory of evolution, of naturalistic evolution. That means the formal definition of theory of of naturalistic evolution says there can be no designer. It says that it was all an unguided natural process. Now, if the theory says that there can be no designer, what do you think the Bible says? Can we accept that formal definition or not? No. Why? Because the Bible, we can do it from memory. What's the main emphasis of Genesis 1 and 2? God said, God created, God saw that it was good. God defines the purposes of it all. God is doing all of this with one ultimate creation. His crowning creation is humanity. There's clearly a designer. Now, after the, in the first service, we've got this huge section of med students, and someone is a researcher at med school, and, and I came up afterwards, and we were talking about it, and one of them said, well, what do you think about theistic evolution? I said, I didn't bring that up on purpose. I said, because I'd be speaking out of a lot of ignorance. I just haven't studied enough to know. But here's the point I want to make clear, that if... Whatever theistic evolution says, it, 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 you have to measure it against the Bible. If theistic evolution, it, it means evolution in that same sense that there is no designer, which I can't believe it does because the word theistic and evolution it must be using evolution in a different way. I would say, whatever you do, you don't freak out, you don't panic, you don't call names, you go to the text and you measure it against the text. And if the text is king, then science, no matter what they say, must be subservient to the text. So what do I believe? I do not believe in formal naturalistic evolution because the Bible makes it clear there's a designer in the process. Now, one more pastoral paragraph, and then we'll get into the text. Why is this so challenging? Why do we feel this antagonistic relationship between science and religion? And I would say there's, there's two, two points here. One is the definition of science, and number two is our culture's view of science. Science is amazing. Scientists are wonderful. They're a gift from God. There have been many medicines and blessings in our life that have come because of science. They are not our enemy. They are our friend. 
Because of the blessings that scientists and the scientific medical community has produced, our culture accepts what they say as fact. If science says it, then it's fact, indisputable fact. In our culture, for the most part, science is king. And we say the text is king. And there lies the rub. The second reason this is a big deal is because science... The definition of science is you can only consider naturalistic and material things. You cannot consider a designer. The the modern definition of science no longer allows that because that is being pushed over into the category of religion. And so true science is naturalism and materialism, which we saw last week, are there by default a theistic cannot have a designer. And the irony is that Darwin faithful, Darwinian faithfulists have all over their research papers this statement that says there is the appearance of design, but it can only be an appearance of design because we know we can only deal in the natural and the material. If they were to conclude there was a designer, that's religion, that's not science. So we have this impasse. But praise the Lord for Christian scientists and Christian researchers, many of whom are in our church. And I pray that God will raise them up to do research with the understanding that there is a designer and there's no such thing as junk DNA which is a term that the scientists have concluded. The DNA that they don't understand what its purpose is is called junk DNA. Imagine if that was considered there's no junk DNA, every piece of DNA has a purpose. What kind of future discoveries, what kind of medicines, what kind of incredible discoveries will be found when our godly researchers research with that in mind? And so... I'm excited about science and the future of it because I know that we are seeing godly scientific people raised up even in this church and they're heading into the med schools and into the labs. We have a researcher in our church and I told her, I said, I'm praying for you. And she looked at me big eyes, I ain't even joined yet, you know. <laughs> and so I'm excited about what's going on in, in that field. So we're not against science. We just know that the text is king. And we measure everything against the text. Now, I listened to my sermon last week, and I didn't understand it. <laughs> so I'm guessing y'all didn't understand it either. So we're going to briefly review what I said last week. And if you're here for the first time, you weren't here last week, then buckle your seatbelt, brother, because you're going to have really, your light's going, what? So go last week, listen to the uh, uh, sermons online. And, and then today I'm going to review it again. But what I'm doing is I'm presenting to you historical creationism, which is John Selhammer's view of what happens in Genesis 1 and 2. It is not getting liberal with the text. It is not being dictated by science. It is a faithful interpretation of the text. At the end of the series, you may say, I don't like that one as much as traditional. And I'd say, that's fine. We're teaching in our new curriculum that begins today, all across the ages, the, and everyone in our church is getting the traditional view of creationism. What I'm doing is showing you that here's an, another alternative view that is faithful to the Hebrew text. Now, let me pray and get started. Lord, please help us. Please help me not confuse everyone. 
Please help us to see what is very clear in your text, and that is that you are the creator. You created, and life has enormous dignity because you created us in your image. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Under the historic creation view, this is the big difference. Under the historical creation view, this verse says that God created everything, not in a chaotic state, not in a state that needs more work, in a perfect state with the sun rising and setting each day, with the birds flying and the fish swimming and the animals running all over the beautiful earth, the beautiful creation. And it had no sin because there were no people yet. So when was this perfect earth created? In verse 1. However long ago it was, it was perfect, it was good, everything was created except for man, and it was created by one God who existed before everything was created, and he spoke it into existence. Then verse 2, the author of the text narrows in on a specific area, a specific area on this beautiful globe, this beautiful earth, and he says, and I'm reading you faithful alternative translations, I'm using the word land instead of earth. Verse 2, The land was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So here the text is zeroing in on one particular piece of land that is on this beautiful, perfect earth, and it has no man. God is about to create man, and so before he creates man, he is working on this one particular piece of land where he's going to put man. Now, what land is that? It doesn't say. But when I read the rest of the Bible, I think there's a lot of emphasis on one particular piece of land that is promised to Abraham and his descendants. So that leads me to think, with good likelihood, if this is a piece of land, it is the, what we later call the promised land. Well, at this point in verse 2, it's uninhabitable. The Spirit of God's hovering over the face of the waters, so it's underwater. And then what we're about to read is seven literal 24-hour days, not because of science, not because of logic, but because the text presents it, in my, my view, very clearly, seven literal 24-hour days of God preparing that one particular piece of land for his crowning creation of humanity. Y'all following me so far? All right, so verse 3. When we read, let there be light, this is very simple. The sun is rising in the morning. God called the light good. He called it day. He defined a day as darkness and then light. Sunset to sun. There was evening. There was morning. One day. That's all he was doing. This is a refrain that acts like a counter in the text. There was evening, there was morning, one day. There was evening, there was morning, day two. There was evening, there was morning, day three. There was evening, there was morning, day four. We'll see that in the text. Verse 6 through 8. God prepares the sky above the water, above the land. The sky above the water, which is covering this piece of land... There was evening, there was morning, second day. 
Verses 9 through 13, God does two things. He calls forth that land, and it says the land appears. So the land comes up and appears out from the water. Assuming this is the promised land, maybe, maybe not, but I think it is based on the rest of the text. So the land appears upon the water. What happens to that land that was above it? It gathers into three bodies of waters. In Hebrew, the, water, the word seas can refer to any size of the body of water. So I would suggest this is the Mediterranean Sea, the Sea of Galilee, and the Dead Sea around the promised land. God made the land grow fruit trees for humanity. He mentions that specific tree because it's going to play a role in the next chapter. There was evening, there was morning, third day. Third day, third literal 24-hour day of preparing the land for the crowning creation of humanity. Chapter 1, verses 14 through 19. I'm going to read it again with the alternative translation that is very faithful to the Hebrew. All Hebrew scholars agree this is a faithful translation, even if they don't like his interpretation. Let the lights in the expanse of the sky be to separate the day from the night. And then you keep reading as it's written, and let them be for signs and seasons, and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light upon the land. And it was so. So what's going on here? Nothing's being created. God is defining the purpose of the lights. He says the purpose is let them be for separating night from day. Let them be to define the seasons. And those seasons become very important in the next chapters because they are the calendar of worship. They seasons the whole community of the Hebrews was worship according to these feasts, according to their calendars. Verse 16. This is a reminder by the author of who made those lights. Verse 16. God made the two great lights. doesn't say when he made them. I would say he made them in verse 1. Not on this day. But on this day, God defined the purpose, but it's a reminder that it was God who made those lights. God made the greater lights to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night and the stars. And it was God who set them in the sky of the heavens to give light on the land. And it was God who told them to rule over the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. God saw it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. So it's actually a very simple paragraph. It's God who created the sun, moons, and stars, and he's the one that defines their purpose. Another day clicks off. Now we pick up where we left off last week in verse 20. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the land across the expanse of the sky. So here God tells the birds who have been flying forever, however long since verse 1. And he tells them, Now fill the sky above this newly created land. And the fish to fill the seas let the seas be filled with swarms of fish. Since God is the one who created them, God is the one controlling them, just like we see in the Exodus narratives and the plagues where God tells the frogs to go all over Egypt. God controls all the critters. He made them all. And that's what he's saying in verse 21. God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds. 
and every winged bird according to its kind. And so here the author is pointing out that it was God who made them, and it was God who made them according to their own kind. And he's setting up the contrast to the way he makes humanity in a few verses. And it's God who saw that it was good, in verse 22. And it was God who blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the land. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. There's that 24-hour frame again. Verse 24. And God said... Let the land bring forth living creatures according to their kind, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. Again, notice they each have their own distinct species according to their own kind. And God tells them, fill the land. This new piece of land that I've created, that I've raised up, appeared out of the water. Now go and fill the land. And the author makes the point, and it was so. When God says it, it happens because he's God and he created it and he's in control of it. Verse 25, God made the beasts of the earth according to their kind and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to his kind. God created them, I would say in verse 1. And here the author reminds the reader that it was God who created them according to their own kind And it's God who controls them, and God saw that it was good. So notice up to this point, there's a pattern. Let the earth bring forth, or let the land be filled, and it was so. God made them after their own kind, and God said it was good. Let the land bring forth, and it was so. God made them after their own kind, and God said it was good. Now everything changes about the language. Everything has been building to this moment. And at this moment, man was created in this verse on that literal day of preparation, the last day of preparation for this piece of land, for humanity. Everything has been building up to this moment where the crowning creation, the climax has been reaching this intense height, and now there's nothing higher than this. God creates humanity. Notice the way it's written. It's completely different language in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. You can't contrast it any more than that. God gets personal. The triune God speaks and says, let us make man like us. Not let the earth bring forth something after its own kind, but let us Make man like us. This clearly is different and special and amazing. God, this eternal creator who existed before anything was created by him. And when he created it, it was effortlessly spoken into existence. He was unbound. There was no one making him do that. He voluntarily, willingly, gladly by his own will and desire of his own heart spoke into existence. And then he zeroes in on this specific piece of land and prepares it and does it with careful attention, making everything just right. And then he says, let's make man in our image. Let's put them right 
here, as we'll see next week. Let's nestle them in this place and give them rest. Humanity is the only one described this way. Humanity is the only one like nothing else, like no other animal, but like God and given dominion. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the species is human in the image of God and is differentiated as male and female. Only humanity is made in the image of God. Only humanity's gender distinction is mentioned. And only humanity is given dominion over everything else. Verse 28, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds, of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the land and earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So everything about the the creation of humanity, the record is so radically different. We'll say more about this next week as we look at the purpose of man, why God created humanity. But here we see humanity is the crowning creation of God. Not like any other creature. Humanity is unique and distinct and has dignity and sanctity of life. In the word biblical commentary, Gordon Wynham says, the concept of man here is markedly different from the standard Near Eastern mythology, which is what would be going on in the time this was written. Man was not created as a lackey of the gods to keep them supplied with food. He was God's representative and ruler on the earth, endowed by his creator with an abundant supply of food and is expected to rest every seventh day from his labors. Only God brings forth life. And human life is the supreme crowning life that he creates. And on day seven, he rests. In verses one through three of chapter two, thus the sky and the land were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all the work that he had done. So on that day, God neither spoke nor worked. He rested. Three times the author repeats, God rested from all the work he had done. Clearly, the author wants to emphasize that God rested. And this is part of what it means to be created in the image of God. We must rest. 
And entering into God's rest becomes a massive, major theme of the entire Bible. Through this God who entered into creation and took on flesh, died on the cross that we may rest from our labors of trying to earn it, he says, by faith I give it to you so you then can be restored to enter into my rest, an eternal rest, a rest, a worshipful rest in the presence of God, as we will see more next week. So in summary, whether God created it all in verse 1 and then prepared the specific piece of promised land for humanity in six days, or he created it all over those six days. The point is clear. God made it all. And he made it all for the blessing of humanity. And we will see for his own glory. And he did it all. And after we rebelled, he came to save us. So that we could be restored to this glorious creation. The fact that humanity is the crowning creation of God and not on par with the other animals or with any other creature has drastic implications. The primary one being the sanctity and the dignity of human life. Very few people will take naturalistic evolution to its ugly, dark Logical conclusions. But there is one man who does. His name is Richard Dawkins. And he espouses the, the venom of this theory that is just much of what he says is appalling. But I'm thankful for his intellectual integrity. That he will be logically consistent with where it leads. Just a few weeks ago, in a tweet... He argued for using stem cell research to create human meat, clean meat, for consumption. So that we don't have to kill the creatures and we can feed the population of the world. Did you hear what I just said? He tweeted this. That we should create human meat in a lab for us to eat. So that we don't kill the creatures and we can feed all of humanity on the globe. Why wouldn't you do that if we're just like the animals? Why wouldn't you end life if it becomes a burden? Why wouldn't you end a race if it is not considered superior like Hitler said? Why wouldn't you end a, a, a human life, if it becomes too financially burdensome to pay for their health needs, their health care needs. That's called euthanasia. Why wouldn't we terminate a pregnancy if it's inconvenient? Or if there's supposedly a potential uh, challenge? Why wouldn't we end a life if something happens and we find it just no longer viable in our determination? If God does not have a unique plan, if humanity is not the supreme crowning creation of a God of design and purpose for human life, that is where it ends. 
Why not do that? Because every single life, no matter what challenges are faced, no matter what age, no matter what race, no matter what ethnicity, every single life that has been created, that has breath, that has heartbeat, I should say, every life God created with a glorious purpose. And God loves that creator who stands before the beginning of creation, who spoke it into existence effortlessly, who we can't even comprehend that God loves every life infinitely. That's why every life has dignity. May we treat every person, every life with the same love and grace and dignity, no matter what race, no matter what economic class, no matter what challenges, no matter what differences. May we see them as an image bearer of God. And if, if you're here today and you don't know that God in a personal, intimate relationship, I want you to know him. And the way you know him, what we see in this text is God's word brings life. And the same is true with spiritual life. The Bible says that we are dead in our sins and we need spiritual life. God's word came to us in the person and work of a man named Jesus. And to know him is to know life. To have your sins forgiven because he died on the cross for you. And to have spiritual life come alive in your heart, in your soul. And to give you meaning and dignity and purpose. I want you to know Jesus, your creator. Trust him today. Father God, would you just bless us this morning with these truths that are clear in your word. That you created all of creation And your crowning creation was life, human life. I pray, Lord, that we will be a church that has, that equips scientists, doctors, medical personnel, nurses, PAs, PTs, all in that medical field, Lord, that you would, we would equip them to go and be godly contributors to the scientific community. But Lord, all of us, may we bear the implications of the text. It's not about being right in our heads. It's about being right in the way that we treat others with dignity and respect. And that we fight for life. We fight with grace and love. But that we fight for the sanctity of life. Lord, may we be a church that glorifies you and honors the life that we see honored in this text. And we praise you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norsferrychurch.org.